0: We end up with this 28 year old lovely girl, and she has asthma. And I ask her, How does it feel like? And she says, I feel alone. I have no friends. I was teased in school. It was horrible. I said, So what do you do about it? She said, I have a secret. And she went down in her bag and she pulled out a straw. <laughs> and she said, I give this straw to all my friends and ask them to breathe through the straw while holding themselves for the nose. And then they get it, and they create sort of a sense of empathy with me, and we're friends. And I stole that idea, and I asked senior management to breathe through a straw, and after 30 seconds, everyone in management spit out the straw. They said, why are you doing this? It's ridiculous. I said, because this is how your patients feel every minute of their entire life.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jeff Wiener, You have to maintain a culture of transformation and stay true to your values. Our guest today, Martin Lindstrom, has driven transformation in many organizations and brands. He's the founder and chairman of The Lindstrom Company, the world's leading brand and culture transformation group. He's also the author of seven New York Times bestselling books, was named one of Times 100 Most Influential People, and has been named as one of Thinker's 50's top business thinkers for three years running. And his newest book just released is The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, And corporate bullshit, Martin. Welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate Podcast.
0: Thank you, and I love the fact that you are not saying BS but bullshit because (laughs) I've had a fight with my publisher about that for a year. (laughs)
1: Okay. Well, I I love the title, and I realize now might be can't listen in some countries or genres, but I'm going to read it (laughs) as it is. That's low on the swear list. So
0: (laughs) yeah, it is. Well, listen, good to be on your show. I know, as you know, I'm a huge fan of your work, and there's so much in common with what we're doing, right? So it's you know it's just amazing that you and I are connecting.
1: Yeah, uh, and you know this is this is an interesting time for organizations where uh, they have to transform, and we'll we'll get into that whether they whether they want a choice. But uh, so you are incredibly creative. I, I'm always interested in hearing, particularly for people creative, what what was sort of early life for you? Give us a picture of uh, teenage first job. What were you doing back then?
0: Well, um, when I was 12 years of age, I loved Lego. And I mean, when I'm saying Lego, uh, (laughs) I was serious about this. It took me a year to develop my own Lego land in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden. So I opened up this Lego land and only two people showed up, my mom and my dad, which really was (laughs) the lowest point of my career, right? So here we go. I went to the local print office. And I persuaded them to um, put an ad in the paper. And Guess what? Two days later, I had 131 visitors showing up at my Lego land. There's just one problem: visitor number 130 and visitor number 131 were the lawyers from the Lego <laughs> suing me. And I said, "It's my brand," and they said, "No, it's ours." Now, here's the good news. The owner of Lego heard about it, and it literally traveled to my parents' house. I mean, this is like Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory story,
1: right? This is amazing, yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. And he said to me, hey, I want to offer you a job at Lego. So I was the youngest kid in history, getting a job at Lego at the age of 12. And that was really where I began my career later on. I opened up an advertising agency a couple of years later, Cadillac like, was a client, sold it to BBDO when I was 18. And then off I went into the world of um, creativity.
1: Sweet, what did you sell when you were 18? The
0: agency? My advertising <laughs> agency, yeah. You I sold had your, an, f- Wow. I yeah. had an agency when I was uh, 13 and I sold it when I was 18 to BBDO,
1: yeah. All right, so I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to guess you were not paying attention in school.
0: What? 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 what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> or filling I mean, in, the, or filling in the bubbles as required.
0: No, 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 not at all. I I don't have an education, really. Yeah. I, my education has been life, and you know it it began even earlier because my parents took me out of school when I was eight years of age, and we traveled around the world for two years on a boat. And I was uh, given one mission that was to earn money so we could afford food on the table. So I literally would go up in each port and sell small Lego men and I would earn money and then I could pay for our food. And I did that for two years. So my dad, he was saying, he was teaching me about life. That was my, my mission, he said. And my mom was teaching him about learning about manners. And right. that's, that's my two points in my bag, right?
1: Well, I was thinking before, if you had had social media for your little Lego land, it would have been a totally different story. You would have been viral. You would have been the Lego kid and would have been all over, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It would have been very different. But you, know, you also know me that I have a really ambivalent relationship to social media. I mean, I was the first to bring Lego online in 1994 in uh, when the World Wide Web was invented. And I started up a huge internet company back then. But also three years ago, I skipped my phone. And I skip my phone because I do feel it kills creativity right now. it It kills interaction and being present. So uh, yes, I probably would have been addicted to it back then because I didn't have the perspective I have today,
1: you know, this creativity thing is interesting. And I, you know I said the joke about school. I just know I, we haven't talked about this before. I just know based on the the type that particularly kids that are very creative and entrepreneurial, the school environment does not service them. And my, my daughter right now is applying to college and, you know, she's studying for the ACT and SAT and it's about getting the right answers in the bubble, right? It's This is hundreds of hours to do this, to get to university. And I was thinking like, my whole job is, most of what I do is figuring out answers to problems that are nonlinear. There is no right answer. And it's just such a disconnect with, I think, what's going on. I understand that some... Industries and professions are about getting it right, you know, cutting in the right place or otherwise. But I, it seems like we're disservicing a a huge group of kids who just, that's not what they are and who they're going to be and the system doesn't work for them. So do you have, do you have any ideas on how to encourage that, but not stifle it? Sounds like your parents had an idea, but, but we don't see that really scalable in the education system.
0: I think there's two things to have in mind. The first thing is you need to have role models. And I'm not sure who role models are today in, in in the life of a young person, because role models very quickly can become a cliche. One of these YouTubers, and when I ask around in our research, asking kids what they want to be, I mean, 50% will say a YouTuber. Now, for me, it's probably not the most ideal role model. The second thing is, I do think that if I was operating in the school sector, I would employ really good psychologists whom were armed with tools to find out where the true interest and true skills are among young kids. And that's not necessarily your grades in school, but perhaps how good are you with people? How good are you with empathy? How good are you at telling stories? How good are you at engaging with others? And then based on that, try to map up a career plan or a path for these kids. Not one of those where you have to go to jail, meaning every right. minute is sort of mapped out for you, the rest of the royal world, but to give you a dot on the wall, you can navigate towards. And I do think I meet a lot of people in the, when they're 25 years of age and they still don't know what they want to do. And they're really confused about it. I, I guess my benefit for all of this was I knew exactly that I wanted to work in advertising when I was nine. I'm not kidding. And I've always had that goal. And then later on, it became branding, and then it became culture and innovation. But really, it was the same path in the end of the day. That's the reason why I would claim that Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours kind of was true for me. But all these poor kids not knowing what they want to do because it's so late in the process. And, well, I would change it by having these experts dealing with them at a very young age and guarding them as mentors.
1: Yeah, and the problem is for one kid, what they need to do is figure out how to get the answers right. And the other kid needs to just be creative or do something for which there is no right answer. And that's just not not going to fit in the box so
0: well that's because you have a, a linear education system as you're pointing out and right. it's also because you do assume it's one size fit all i would have two classes i would have the creative class because we know from all sorts of experiments that if you are creative you are stimulated by other creatives but we also know that if you're not encouraged to be creative your creativity dies and the same with the linear folks exactly the same so yes you have to split it but you know what, I think that's a dream scenario in a world now where we can't even run one class, <laughs> uh, So,
1: <laughs> two classes. Now you can be creative. You're at home. You know, you can do whatever you want to do. You can. You can. All right. So you started the Lindstrom company about the beginning of 2000. Uh, and I think you one of the really focused on, on personal and business branding. Uh, you were sort of predicting explosion in the focus on branding. What, what tipped you off to that change or that that was going to become important?
0: I think in the beginning, what I've always realized, this is a funny story. With my mom, she actually had a a cosmetic chain and she would have a clinic where she would give facials and whatever to her patients, and I would be lying on the floor. Now, I'm six and seven years of age back then. And then I would listen to what these customers would be saying while she was in the room, and then with they would leave. They would say something completely different. And I was very puzzled about it, so I started to do surveys and asked them and realized whatever I did, it would be different answers. And so I've always had in mind that what people are telling you is not necessary what they're thinking and feeling. So later on in the game, I began combining branding with you know new things. So first, back in the days, I would take clicks and mortar, and I invented that term to say online and offline. And then I would write a book about the senses called Brand Sense, where i know basically infused the senses into how we build brands and as a result of that you know and so what I've always done is to combine two ordinary things in a new way. And when it comes to neuroscience, what I learned was guess what? 85% of what we do every day is subconscious. So that's what's fascinating me. I want to understand why people, why I am doing what I'm doing. And I've evolved that ever since all of it comes around to a very simple premises that is that we are all about people. And if you appeal to people and motivate people the right way, whether that's customers or employees, you, know, you get a lot more out of it. It's more fun and it's more productive. And in the end of the day, that's what I'm doing. So branding has helped me to understand perception and then to understand culture.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading platforms i advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to shopify and as a buyer what i love about buying from shopify enabled sites is that they already know who i am and i don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. Is it about making the subconscious more conscious? Is that a big part of it?
0: No, it's a matter, well, yes and no. It's it's a matter about being aware of the subconscious so that when you do irrational things, you know why. I mean, here's the issue. If I ask most people about how irrational they are, <laughs> I think nine out of 10 will say I'm deeply rational, right? Yet, I'm not sure if you like me, if I grab a a, a remote control and it's flat for batteries, uh, you press even harder to squeeze the last last (laughs) drop of battery out of it, right? And So that's deeply irrational. We knock on wood. We do all that stuff. We fall in love. But we don't want to recognize that side of our story. It's like, like, oh, no, it's embarrassing. I'm irrational. No, it's 85% of your, your life. And because of that, what I try to do is to understand the irrational side, whether that is to travel around the world and move in with people in their homes, and I've done that nearly 3,000 times over the last two decades, or it is to scan- Wait, wait you
1: moved into people's homes 3,000 times? <laughs> yes, yeah, true. This sounds like a way to not have to pay rent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to pay a lot for airline tickets, right? Yeah. It was crazy. So that, that
1: was on behalf of clients?
0: Mm, yeah, in most cases it was. It was. It really happened when Nestle back in the days. They said to me, hey, we want you to reinvent infant formula. So I started to move in and spend time with young mothers to understand their lives in China. And then later on expanded, a lot of brands said to me, what's going on? I mean, Lego is a very good example. Back in the days, uh, Lego had a huge crisis about 15 years ago, and was actually close to bankruptcy. And the reason why was because they they listened to big data, and big data was all about correlation, and big data was concluding that the instant gratification generation had arrived. You no know, Kids had no patience whatsoever to play with Legos. So, Lego changed the size of the bricks from these tiny bricks to gigantic building yeah. blocks, right? And sales dropped 31% that year. So, what they did was they moved in with, with kids across the world. And this is a true story. In one of the stories, they went into a home of an 11-year-old boy. And we asked him one question, what are you most proud of? And this kid, he points at himself, the with there's an old worn-down pair of sneakers. And of course, the Lego team is completely perplexed. Why would he say that? Uh, because I expected Nintendo or PlayStation or whatever. So they asked him why. He said, because I'm the best skater in town. You see, if you skate down a skateboard, it creates a certain wear and tear on the side of that sole. And exactly that angle is the indicator of he was number one. And that was the, the time where the Lego had a eureka moment because they realized it's not the size doing it for the Lego bricks. It was actually the ability to infuse storytelling into things because if a kid is willing to spend hundreds not thousands of hours fine-tuning an ankle on a shoe why wouldn't they play with lego for thousands of hours so out of that the lego movie was invented and out of that lego became not only the number one toy company in the world but seven times bigger brand value wise than number two and this came out of moving in in consumer homes and understand the psychology from a consumer point of view, rather than assuming things and reading spreadsheets.
1: Yeah, that, that that's an excellent point. So I, I worked for a brilliant inventor who had over 100 patents um, about 10 or 12 years ago on, on some projects, and he, he's since passed away, but he, wanted, he invented actually automatic flushing toilets. And one wow. of the things that that I've learned from him was, you know, I, I talked to all these other companies and they were, oh, we're working on this top secret confidential, you know, thing. And, and he would have me do some research and it would go to the customer and say, if the product can, he said, look, I know how to do it. No one else has to do it. If the product can do this, would you buy it? What would you pay? I always found that these top secret companies who weren't talking to customers, it just seemed like a... He, he was trying to invent a cylindrical digital printer, so it actually print look, just saying that doesn't mean you know how to do it. This is twelve years ago. But you know, if you talk to the client, they said, "Oh, if you delivered that product at this price point, I would buy a thousand of them and it just it taught me a huge lesson that exactly to exactly say how many people are sitting there, you know, in it with spreadsheets and reports and whatever, and not talking to their current and prospective customers
0: mm-hmm, absolutely. Oh, listen, I guess this brings me back to one of the focus points I have today because what i've realized is that companies have lost common sense they are seeing the world from inside out and because of that they're more focused on protecting what they have compliance regulations rules and guidelines but it's when you turn the the table and you see the world from outside in you start to realize this and let me give you an example which was really telling um One of our clients is one of the largest pharma clients in the world. They're the number one player in respiratory field, you know, asthma and all that stuff. And uh, I remember I spoke to them about a year ago and asked them, how often have you spent time with your patients? And they said, never. I said, never? For 100 years, never? Yeah, that's true. We can't do it because of compliance. I said, BS. Yes. So I spoke to a compliance, persuaded them to go into patients' homes, and we end up with this 28-year-old lovely girl, and she has asthma. And I asked her, how does it feel like? And she says, I feel alone. I have no friends. I was teased in school. It was horrible. I said, so what do you do about it? She said, I have a secret. And she went down in her bag, and she pulled out a straw. <laughs> and she said, "I give this straw to all my friends and ask them to breathe through the straw while holding themselves for the nose, and then they get it and they create sort of a sense of empathy with me, and we are friends." And I stole that idea and I asked in the management to breathe through a straw. And after thirty seconds, everyone in management spit out the straw. They said, "Why are you doing this? It's ridiculous." I said, "Because this is how your patients feel." every minute of their entire life. And what happened was really remarkable because suddenly it was like, he had a magic wand. They suddenly had a sense of empathy inside the organization. And suddenly R&D was developing products seen from a patient's point of view. They heads out was employing people with empathy. And what I learned from that exercise was, and this is what's so fascinating, there's a direct correlation between empathy and common sense. The more you have common sense, the more you actually have a degree of empathy. And guess what? In our life today, empathy is almost disappearing. You know, our study shows today that empathy levels are down 50% over the last decade because of Botox which is removing facial movements, because of Twitter's, because of social media, because of our session of that little photo on the corner, because of uh, KPIs and silos and all that stuff. And that's killing that common sense, which typically made a startup become successful and later on made it fail.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. There was some study I read where they were showing – teenagers like posters of facial expressions, right? And they just couldn't identify them because of all the online interaction. And so again, how do you empathize if you don't yeah. know whether someone's sad, mad, glad, frustrated, sarcastic, right? It's interesting. So yeah, I mean, you're you're getting there uh, into your book. Um, I'll tie it into the next question, Ministry of Common Sense. So look, you are hired to help organizations transform, become creative, do something that they weren't doing. So I'm guessing this runs into a lot of bureaucratic red tape, bad excuses, and corporate <laughs> bullshit. So, how, I mean, that was a great example. But what are some of the principles from the book, or how do we, how does an organization or a person, you know, move away from this? This is how we've always done it mentality, which which actually stopped work. You know, people didn't have a choice to. If, if you're a gym and this is how you always done it, and you're shut down. You were forced to figure out in 2020 a new model of of doing that. But what what. What has made the difference for you in terms of getting by that red tape and being able to really drive transformation in, in some of your clients?
0: Let, let me put this into perspective. There was an experiment done with chickens. They were put into a cage and stuck there for half a year. And one day, they are let out on the beautiful green grass, and the sun was shining, and the birds were singing. And guess what? The chickens went out. And after 30 seconds, they went straight back in again. Yeah. And I call that the chicken cage syndrome. And really, it's the fear of the unknown. So when you want to change organizations, you have to be aware of that organizations have what I call an immune system. It's a defense mechanism for change. It's kind of a straitjacket that's holding you back from change. So how do you get the chickens out? There's two things you can do. If I was to do a drawing right now, and you imagine you have four chicken cages seen from top, and if they are pointing towards a square, all of these, if I place the corn in the middle of that square, most chickens will probably say, oh, that's very far away, it's really risky. My KPIs, not allowed around that. What if this manager is being fired? I'll look like a fool. So you look to the other ones and they'll look around, they'll look at each other and they'll go back in again. Yeah. And that is the biggest mistake. If you want to do transformations in organizations, you can't do it with a long-term sort of action plan. You have to create what I call a 90-day intervention, small bite-sized celebrations which are re-emphasizing your behavioral change. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is the issue and the reason why companies are so stupid quite often is because they become addicted to their own Kool-Aid, they're seeing the world from one point of view, and it becomes self-enforcing in the message. So you have to force them out of that perspective. And here's what I did for a client. So we have a client called Maersk. Maersk is the largest shipping company. Shipping containers, yeah. Exactly, you're good, yeah. 21% of all trade in the world is Maersk.
1: Wasn't that the line, the captain on the boat? Wasn't that Maersk? It was, Yeah. yeah. Tom Hanks, yeah. yeah. They
0: invented the container ship, right? It's crazy, right? So, been around for 100 years. You know my formula: big company, 100 years, lots of different layers, a lot of bureaucracy, no common sense, called nonsense. (laughs) Right? That's sort of that's sort of the Iraqi here. So, anyway, they knock on my door. They say, "Hey, we really have a problem. How do we fix this?" And I sort of started to spend time with captains on the ships. I spent time with the customers in Japan, in India, in Turkey, wherever. And I realized there's a term in that industry called rolling. Now, I'm sure you had never even heard about the term. I had no idea about rolling. Rolling means if you're shipping your container, if someone else is paying a higher fee to have their container shipped, it will override your container and will be stocked in the pot for a day more, a week more, a month more. It doesn't really matter.
1: So this is like Google search for containers, basically.
0: It is, it is, right? Yeah. It, except that you don't really know about it and you will never yeah. find out, <laughs> except if you're sending flowers from Colombia. they're really not flowers anymore when they arrive, right? right? Yeah. So, so that's called rolling. It's an industry standard. So I said to them, you must be kidding. And they, uh, the people at Merck said to me, yeah, yeah, but we are 5% better than everyone else. I said, well, that's not the point. You just can't do this. So I could not convince them. So I did an exercise. This is important. I said to them, imagine Musk buys Uber. Now, I took Uber because they spies Uber. It's not part of their industry. It's outside. So not Uber buying Musk, but Musk buying Uber, what would happen? And then we had 88,000 people around the world brainstorming on the consequences. And suddenly, just like that straw, they got it my gosh, it means that people would be kicked out of this car halfway through. Yeah, yeah. And like one time, sorry, <laughs> that type of thing. And we created an animated movies. So we had to send it around. And suddenly I created a sense of empathy. And once that happened, then we could turn around the organization. And what was fascinating about this is within two years, we tripled the NPS and the share price has tripled over the last year alone because empathy is part of the DNA. And this is my message. So what I would do if you had to work on this is to find the friction point seen from a customer's point of view, attach a 90-day intervention around it, turn it upside down, and see it through the, the consumer's point of view, but see it through an irrational point of view. Assume that consumers and customers are not rational, but irrational, and then fix it by applying a solution. Celebrate it after 90 days, and then repeat that cyclist, right?
1: Can you explain the rational, if you're assuming they're irrational, does that mean they won't do what is right for them or explain that part to me?
0: Well, let me let me give you an example. So if we go up in the air, so I'll take another client of ours, which is Swiss International Airlines. Um, when we were asked to fix the airline uh, on the economy class, Normally, and what was say, wrong with it when? Well, th- there's two things which everything. Were wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, not really. Not compared to American airline, spot, yeah, but but yeah, compared to yeah. Europeans, it was. That's
1: my American so, view. It's a tough business <laughs> to be in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: It is tough. So yeah, well, first of all, they're not on time. It's Swiss, and they're not on time. Yeah. That's kind of ironic. That is ironic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's kind of not. No, people are not happy. So, if I would have said to them, "Hey, what's the issue?" Well, let's fix the legroom. The catering food, the, uh, the entertainment system, I'm sure I would have been fired and we had to increase the f- prices anyway with 30%. Yeah. So what we did was we spent time with uh, passengers and I took the captains with me, I took the cabin crew, I took the Lockets carousel managers with me into homes of passengers around the world where we were packing the suitcase, we're traveling with them. Mm. And there was one word coming up all the time, one word, and that was anxiety. Mm-hmm. Anxiety of, will I reach this pain? Will I get COVID? Will I this and that? So then we went back and understood, tried to understand what is anxiety. Remember, anxiety is deeply irrational, right? I don't need to tell you, right? Yeah. So what we did here was we said, why don't we remove that systematically? So what we did was, I said, time and anxiety is very linked. So I teamed up with the captains and I said, hey, why don't we install a new piece of software in the cockpit where we can see the conditions on ground? And we did that. So this is a true announcement. Welcome on board on Swiss International Airlines. We're about 40 minutes away from JF Kennedy's airport. And I have some good news. I've just been in contact with ground handling, which are informing me that we will arrive at gate 107. Which is good news because it's only a seven-minute walk from immigration. And even better, immigration is informing me that the waiting time is 11 minutes. And Lockheed's carousel managers are telling me that there's only a 14-minute wait for your Lockheeds. So with a bit of luck, you will be out of the system in around 30 minutes. Even better, I've been on Waze and I can see that the transportation time to Manhattan is only 48 minutes. So again, if we're lucky, you will be back home in your home in around two hours from now on. I hope you enjoyed flying with Swiss International Airlines.
1: Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcasts. Hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well, HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, The Big Idea, HBR Magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code elevate right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code elevate to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. When you're hiring for your small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year, I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And that whole speech works as long as you're not an hour late. (laughs) No,
0: no, that's not true. Because this is what's so interesting. Let's say you're an hour late. Then you're saying to them, ladies and gentlemen, um, I've just been informed that we are late. In fact, we are on time up here in the cloud, but there is problems at immigration right now. In fact, the waiting time down there is 46 minutes at the moment. So it doesn't matter if you get on ground fast or or late, Mm. because in fact, you will go through this condition. But what I can inform you about with the current situation, you will be back home in around three hours from now on. By saying that, by informing the passengers up front, you basically... Keep your image of being on time because you are the one informing rather than the other one, which is, folks, this is captain on board on American Airlines. We are a couple of more minutes late. And then you wait for another five hours, right? You're standing on the time, mark, just waiting and waiting and waiting, right? Right. I mean, you have to be transparent in the information. So, anxiety for me is number unknown, one. Right? It's unknown. Yeah. And that is what's driving the subconscious, the irrational, the 85%,
1: right? So, how did you measure? Well, first of all, I, there's similar, uh, you know, one of our better airlines is Southwest. Yeah. And, you know, they really focus on the pilots just connecting Absolutely. and some humor. And they come out. And we, we landed early when I was flying, I think, from Boston to Baltimore before COVID. And I remember, I was, look, this is something I remember the pilot said a year and a half later. You don't remember this. And he said, look, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're in about 22 minutes early today. So just remember, you owe us next time we're late. And, you know, it was just it was just some great levity. And again, how many times do you remember the line that a yeah. pilot said, you know, two years ago, um, just yeah. creating some connections. So, how do they how do they measure the the impact of those changes?
0: Well, we measured it on two in two different ways, and the first way was in passenger satisfaction, and that went through the roof. But the other one was really ironic. We actually started to become on time again yeah. not just because the culture started to it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy you Now, if the captain is saying that the everyone is starting to be aligned around being on time but there was another little detail i'll tell you about this robert i think you'll like it so i sneaked on board on the plane after the cabin crew had left the planes along with the the cleaning staff and I was sitting at one of these rows and the cleaning staff would arrive, they would lift the armrest, they would vacuum clean the seat, take them down again and do that throughout the plane. So I said to one of my colleagues, do you want to do an experiment with me? Why don't you try to crawl into the window seat and measure how long time will it take? So he did that, six seconds. Then I said, let's do the same now keeping the armrest up. And guess what we learned? He saved six seconds per row, which is six minutes for a plane, which is six minutes quicker turnaround, which means six minutes on time, which means happy passenger. So we actually jumped from being, I think, number six to number four in a year just because of that insight.
1: So you asked everyone when you landed just to lift up the armrest?
0: No, I just asked the, the cleaning staff not to take it down.
1: No, I'm saying the policy was the policy. How did you get them all up? Well, we just talked to the cleaning staff. And the it. cleaning
0: staff would have to lift it in a way. I just asked them not to take it down. Got so it. they will kick it up. And our patients will take it down when they came in, right? Um, I think my message here is that common sense for me and the Ministry of Common Sense has two things in mind. One is you have to infuse common sense into your organization by seeing it from outside in. And you have to do that by feeling like you are a passenger or a consumer or a patient or a customer. And the second thing is, you all, this is so important, you always have to earn money or save money by doing it. And the reason why is, if it's only, only helping the passenger or the customers, in today's world, the companies is not motivated by it as much as they would in the past because it's not linked to the bottom line. But if I can in parallel with that link it with the bottom right. line, then what happens is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and suddenly it reinforces itself. And actually the focus comes back on the patient or the passenger or the customers, right?
1: Right. I mean, it's the
0: win-win you're looking mm-hmm. for, right? Always. And I, let me give you an example on it just to to tell you how crazy this is because what I'm talking a lot about is empathy because it's so linked with common sense. And we all believe we have common sense and actually very few of us have it because it's it's dropping as much as it is. But let me give you an example. So Toyota, the car company reached out to me many years ago and they said, hey, we want to support the environment. They came up with a hybrid car. We want to support the environment and we also want to save money. Um, so I suggested that you run a competition competition across Japan, having all the engineers submit ideas for how to do that. And there was thousands of ideas coming in. And guess what? Not a single one of these ideas could be used. They were mm. complicated and they were just complex in all sorts of different ways. Now, this is funny. So a nine-year-old kid is <sighs> on a tour, okay? He walks through the plants with his school and his dad works in there and he's very proud. And he hears about the competition. So he's submitting a simple idea and his idea is, why don't you just shut down all light in all the factory plants? And a little bit like the Empire's new clothes, you're familiar with the fairy Mm -hmm. tale, right? The little kid saying, he has no clothes on. Well, in this case, he said, shut down the light. And everyone was saying, what a ridiculous kid. And then little was saying that, except that he was right because there's only robots operating in those plants. So there's no people. So why should you have light on, right? (laughs) So they literally shut down the light, saved millions of dollars, saved the environment and saved money.
1: So funny. They beat all the engineers.
0: Mm, Yeah, they do. And this is the point. I think the point is when you're too close to the forest, you can't see if it's just trees. I know it's a cliche, but I do think that the more we are stuck behind these screens. And you and I talked about how we hate sitting in front of Zoom all the time, but the more linear we become, the more we see the world from my point of view. And and even worse, I'm sitting looking right now in my little stamp-sized photo of myself. (laughs) I'm getting wrinkles there. Well, that's the reason why the number of plastic surgeries are going up 300%. We are so obsessed about ourselves. That means I'm not taking other point of view into account. It's a self-fulfilling bubble I'm operating in. So more than ever, common sense really needs to be restored because if we don't do that, if we go back to work now and replicate all the mistakes, we didn't get the message of COVID-19. I tend to say, go forward to work and reinvent the wheel now because this is a moment for you to restore common sense.
1: But, well, to do that, you have to get people listening to each other. And I don't, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in the U.S., you got a lot of people screaming at each other, but I'm not sure they're listening to each other. Like, how do, we, how do we get people open to the ideas, listening to perspective, not assuming, you know, not drawing a line before they start and having that be their position on something? Because then there's no way that this stuff has a chance of success. It,
0: it's a very big Issue And you're raising yeah. a political issue right now, which is probably the biggest, I think, biggest issue the United States have had in me recent memory. And it, I don't need to tell you the main reason why this is happening is because of social media. No, as much as a lot of people are loving it, it's also a self-enforcing media where you build up your own bubble and you see only yourself and your own yeah. voice. The less you are exposed for other voices, the more you are willing to align yourself with other voices because I'm always right. So why should I? It's like a lonely child, right? Why should I care about others? If I have other siblings, I'm used to negotiating and accommodating and aligning myself. So I I do think it starts there among others. And it starts with the algorithms, it starts with making sure that there's always a constant dose of other views present in whatever feed you're receiving. That's a good way of starting this process. Can you do it overnight? No, but I have to tell you that I, I'll give an example for one of the largest food companies in the world. I I travelled with the CEO. We went into uh, to homes of consumers. We ended up in Japan, and this CEO, and I mean this is one of the top food companies in the world. They have more than 200,000 staff employed. They conducted this huge study, 19,000 consumers being interviewed about uh, all sorts of stuff. And then we went into this home of a lady and we observed her. We spent time with her for about a day. And after that, we got a brilliant idea. And the idea was really turning around this entire company. And I'll never forget it. The CEO went back to the board. And the board said to him, So what happened with those 19,000 people? And he literally took the report. I was there, hmm. threw it into the bin, and he said, I felt something. And that's what has to drive us because we need to reinforce empathy in our organization. And this is my message. My message is we rarely feel things. We look at things, we don't relate to it anymore because we have no relationship with things. So we need to reinfuse empathy into the way social media is designed so i would start in silicon valley of course we have issues with politicians but politicians remember are kind of mirroring what the population want and population is mirroring what they see and what they feel and hear, and that comes back to social media, which today is by far the number one source of information. So I would start at uh, the source
1: or, or disinformation.
0: Not disinformation, whatever yeah. it is, because it depends on what side you're seeing at, right? And that's back right. to empathy, right?
1: Uh, well, there, there are opinions, but then you know the the velocity of which things get shared that are just not checked, right, or not verified is uh, that's the that's what's different than than what the news, you know, the news has liability, you know, social media does not have liability. So you No, it me- doesn't. It's yeah. a super good point you're saying here,
0: but I also have to be frank with you. I do think the system is broken now and you cannot repair this, that very big problem you're alerting to, you cannot repair yeah. that in a year because... What I would do, and, and I know some classes now are doing it across the US, certainly in North Carolina and South Carolina is happening right now, and at Chapel Hill actually, where, but in particular at, at school levels, where kids literally are asked to identify two different points of views on the same topic in the news and try to dissect it and tell the teachers what indicates this is the right. Piece of news, and this is the wrong piece of news. That's great. Yeah. And going through source recognition. Now, you and I never learned about that in school. We kind of assumed that the media was somewhat objective, right? Uh, yeah. When we were young. Now, in the meantime, everything has flipped upside down. So, for a generation assuming that everything is right and suddenly it's actually not, I do understand why they. And I know sometimes have doubt about seeing what's fake and what's not. But the next generation have to learn this from, from childhood, really. And I don't need to tell you, that's a lack of 10 years to get to that point. Yeah. So you better get the school system in order, because if you don't do that, democracy also collapses, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and we have to stop calling opinions that we don't agree with fake, right? I yeah. mean, they're, they're, this has been applied to, you can have difference of opinions. You can have different, look, anyone who's good at statistics, they are different ways of looking at the same facts. Yes, but yes. just calling things we don't agree with fake is, both sides, is super problematic.
0: Well, it's it's a good point. And I, I think, you no know, Bill Bernbeck, which is the founder of BBDO and, and DDB, he had always a little note in his pocket, and it had four words on it. And uh, whenever he would have a conflict with a person or have an argument that could not convince the other person, something was wrong, he would grab for that little note in his pocket and it would say, what if he was right?
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: And that is the starting point. I don't think we even take the time to grab our pocket anymore.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I look, if you want to be... I was having this discussion with someone in a totally different context saying, if you're a marketer, let's say you're a political operative or something, and you want to understand why people resonate with that argument, rather than dismissing it, you would want to deeply understand it, right? <laughs> and understand wh- why people believed it or otherwise, because that's, if you wanted to co- even compete against it, you were better off understanding that. It's sort of like the moving into the house, <laughs> you know, to understand it.
0: It's exactly the same. And listen, I'm going to give you a really grotesque story, but I think it illustrates the point. I was kidnapped when I was in in Venezuela some time ago. And I don't need to tell you being kidnapped is not a pleasant uh, thing you can experience in your life. But what I learned from that exercise was that I was sitting in this household, you had these people with machine guns sitting next to me and holding me then that room for for a couple of weeks. And I started to ask them about their lives because I'm fundamentally curious. I want to understand about people. I want to understand why do they want to kidnap me beside the obvious? And I learned about their families. I learned about the pain. And listen, I actually had sympathy for them. I actually had empathy for them. I was at that level where I said, do you know what? I really understand where you come from and they could feel it. And I think for the first time ever, they just let me go and i later on have been in contact with one of them and i wrote to him i said so why did you let me go and he said Do you know what i could feel you understood me and that was enough no one has ever listened to me before
1: right and I, right we don't have to agree but listening yeah. and understanding is yeah
0: super important
1: so it was one thing i wanted to make sure i asked you uh because i'm, I'm fascinated by this uh something you've talked about how each of us has a twin self and we have an inner age versus a physical age. Can you explain the twin self concept and why you think it's so important?
0: Well, listen, uh, when I was a kid and I loved Lego, I realized I love creativity and actually I want to stay a child forever. So that inner child really stayed with me uh, for a very long time. And if you were to ask me today how old I am, I'm probably not more than 15 years of age. And that's where I realized we probably all of us have different ages. We actually have, in my opinion, three ages. We have our real age, so I'm 50. I have my inner age, which is probably, no, let's say 15. And then I have my corporate age. Now, I don't work in a corporate, but if you were to ask a person working in corporations, quite often they're older than the real physical age. So the inner age is really a theory around that we have an age freezing inside ourselves. And what's fascinating is when I talk to men across the world, they typically are substantially younger on the inside. The more they're hammered by bureaucracy, BS, red yeah. tape, the older they get, the more they lose their inner the child. But the inner child is the naive
1: kid. He just wants his Legos, yeah. <laughs>
0: it is the guy who wants the Legos is the 9 year old kid in Toyota, right? Yeah. Which are challenging things from a naive but pretty common sense point of view. I'm pretty sure, Robert, you are younger on your
1: inside. What, what's your real age and what's your inner side, Nate? Uh, my real real age is 44. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, I don't, I, who wants to be older on the inside, I guess? I'm, I, I, I like playing with Legos. But yeah.
0: let, let me help you here for a second. So, um, a good way to find out what your inner age is, is for you to tell me when you had a profound moment in your childhood, something happened was really big and it kind of froze your time. Is there anything you've experienced, right? Remember, my big moment was my Lego land and selling my company and that was the reason why I was
1: 15 and it froze my time. Did you have a big thing happening? I had one, it actually, ironically, I think forced me to be older, but I was on a, I was on a train with my mom who had just had, uh, we just, my sister was just born. We were coming back and visit my grandparents in Philadelphia, baby, and we were taking this Amtrak train. I was 10 years old and, uh, she told me to go with the trains would stop and it would switch from coal to electric in, in Connecticut. And she said, Oh, go watch them switch the engine up a couple of cars. And so I was very independent kid and, uh, I was always wanting to do my own thing. And so I, you know, went up to the front of the train, watched them switch the engine. It was awesome. Started walking back to my mom and the train just ended. So they had actually split the train in half. And I was, this is before cell phone, so I'm, I'm headed back to DC. They're going to Boston you know, just absolute paranoia. Couldn't find a conductor, and I ended up spending the day in the. And remember, this is before pay. I ended up spending the day in the train station, and then taking the train by myself back to Boston that night at, at ten o'clock. So that was a very formative experience for me.
0: Wow, how old were you back then? Ten. Ten. Well. There's two theories around that. In fact, I met another guy which had a similar thing, and but that continued in his life. He was the adult for the family as it broke up, and therefore he was very adult and actually older than his real physical age. But I, I would assume that actually that is your starting point, that age, and probably you've been affected by things since. So you probably are between the age of 10 and 15 on the inner side. But remember, you have to maintain it, right? It, it also slips through.
1: Right. So interesting. Right. So at that time, right, I actually think you're right. I think that forced me to kind of grow up faster in that moment and be more responsible And at that yeah. time. But you're saying you're sort of frozen in time by those moments? Quite often you yeah. are. And you're frozen because you,
0: you get an appetite for that change of behavior and therefore it becomes self-forcing in your lifestyle. Certainly for me, it became my way of thinking. And I've always said in the way i innovate to combine two ordinary things in a new way but by doing that you also need to have the courage to find a creative way of combining things and that's the inner child doing it it's not the adult because the adult will censor you the adult will say well, i can't do that because i'll look like a fool I'll, all this stuff right? right the fact that you are an entrepreneur you have a company with nearly 200 people means that you on one hand have had the courage but you also probably had a lesson in how to grow people and and basically make sure you maintain people. And that's a really adult role. So you are probably a melting pot of stuff, I could imagine, in your brain, right? But let me give you an advice and everyone listening. My advice is the inner child is something you want to maintain. You don't want to lose it. Creativity is not something you have permanently. It's something you have to maintain just like a muscle, and that means you have to stimulate your creativity. The more you stimulate it, the more creative you become. The less you use your creative muscles, the less creative you become. And that's super important when you are working 24-7 with all your stuff, that you probably less and less are allowing your creative side to connect dots in a new way. We don't think about it. We don't feel it. But at some states, you will sort of realize, my God, those ideas I got once are kind of disappearing.
1: They're, they're, yeah, they're like 80% in the shower, right? And that's why it's just no joke. You keep the pad there because that's when you're not engaged and you're just thinking and brainstorming and yeah, you know, just yeah. walking along and something sort of hits you.
0: Yeah, and, and you're so right. So I did call that the water moment. So this is a really good advice to everyone. If you want to find out when you're most creative, and remember creativity helps you to survive, then write down your day, hour by hour, and then write down when you were most creative. Now, what I did was the same as you. I realized I'm most creative when I'm swimming. And I call that the water moment. So, in fact, my last book, The Minister of Common Sense, I literally wrote in the pool. I had a <laughs> pen and a paper in its end. And because I got this, it's almost like a meditation. I really free up my thoughts. Yeah. So, I realized a lot of people are creative when they're in water, in contact with water. Shower moment, washing up, whatever. Other people when they're running. Some people when they're in the car. And I found out that by mapping down when I'm most creative. and then I started. To dial that up. So I killed the number of Zoom calls. I halved it. I said, I want to have more water moments. I want to mix it up more. So I really reshuffled my, my day around it. I do think a lot of people follow the flow and they're seduced by the temptation of back-to-back Zoom meetings because they, they perceive that as being productive, right? The more Zoom calls, the more productive right. I am, the more I'm fulfilling my duties. That's wrong, You have to ask yourself, when am I really contributing the value? And if I'm just sitting there nodding for the sake of nodding, jump off and put things into perspective and add even more quality at the next session. And that's what I did. That's what you do with your your shower moment. But you have to identify those moments, preserve them, protect them, and use them as your source of inspiration.
1: That's great advice. All right, Martin, last question. What's a, this could be singular or repeated. What's a personal or professional mistake you've made that you've learned the most from?
0: Oh, every day. <laughs> every day I'm doing mistakes. I'm only learning from my mistakes, to be honest. I think um, I'll tell you a story, and I hope I'm not offending anyone with this story, but it comes back to Lego. So in 1994, when the World Wide Web was invented, I knocked on Lego's door and I said to him, hey, let's go online. And we did it, and it was Christmas, In 1994, the 1st of December, we invented the advent calendar. The advent calendar was a calendar where people could go in and look at these small lids. You had 24 of them you could open. We were European. Lego is from Denmark. And we were ready to go. And We hammered this out through the emails. And I remember I went to work the 1st of December, 1994, and I had 6,000 emails in my inbox. It was called Quick Mail back then with Apple. And I was just blown away and they were all complaints. How dare Lego have a political view and how dare Lego supporting a religion. And and you have to remember, I came from Denmark, 99.9% are Protestants. So I never seen other religions. And I never seen people of other skin colors. I mean, I literally was living in a bubble. So I went into panic. I signed up uh, 200 students They came in, we designed individual emails and we wrote back to everyone. It was really beautiful. And then I was lazy. I added a signature line, and the signature line would end every email by saying, we hope you enjoy playing with Lego, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. (laughs) And that was the moment I learned, coming from a one point of view, that I was completely wrong. I had no empathy from anyone else. I saw the view from one point of view, and I've learned from that ever since. And that's the reason why I wrote The Minister of Common Sense.
1: All right. Well, Martin, thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. You're, you're an incredible storyteller, and I'm sure there's a... we'll have to have you back. I'm sure there's a hundred more stories uh, that, that we didn't get out of you.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure. And listen, keep up your amazing work. I love your books. I just want to say that. I don't say that lightly, but I do it when I feel that, that the views really adding quality to the world and you're writing to us. So well done to you too.
1: Well, thank you. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Martin and his work, uh, as well as his new book, The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate Bullshit on the detailed episode page at Robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love if you could leave us a a review. And thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.